0: Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Who were the Romantics? And how did they shake up society and culture at the turn of the 19th century? On today's Everything You Wanted to Know episode... We're tackling a rebellious literary movement whose members' lives were as unconventional as their art. To tell us more about the Romantics, I spoke to Daisy Hay, Professor of English Literature at the University of Exeter and the author of Young Romantics, The Shelley's, Byron and Other Tangled Lives. Welcome to the History Extra podcast, Daisy. Thank you for joining me today. We're going to be delving into the world of the romantics. Um, So I want to just start us off with a really broad question so that everybody knows exactly what we're talking about. What was romanticism? It's a big question as well
1: as a broad question. Uh, Romanticism is a literary and artistic movement that happens For our purposes in Britain, but also in Germany and France, after really after the French Revolution in 1789. So that's a bit of a crude date, but it works for us as a kind of point when there is just an explosion of new thinking about literature and art, and also about the role of literature and art, actually, in the life of a country, in the life of its people. So that's a starter for 10, but there's a lot more you could say about that.
0: Oh, and we will delve into things in much more depth um, in today's episode. But Susan Pollitz has asked what years or decades the Romantic period covers. So obviously you said we see the beginning of this movement at the end of the French Revolution, but when does it span until... So it's probably gearing up
1: from about the 1780s, 1789, so that year when everything changes in Europe, when the Bastille Falls is often a kind of key moment or a key kind of uh, point in the, the timeline. There... The heyday of romanticism in again in Britain is really the 1790s and the first two decades of the 19th century by the time you get to 1822 some of the kind of big romantic figures have died and we're also into a kind of weird hinterland in English literary history between romanticism and the start of the Victorian era which makes a bit of a nonsense of kind of questions of literary period but Those three decades, 1789 through to about 1820, are the kind of crucial, the crucial moments, I'd say.
0: So to get to grips with what this um, artistic and literary movement really meant, Marie Sandvig on Facebook has asked, what was the criteria for something being romantic? Can you tell us a bit more about the style? Yeah,
1: so we're really talking about a literary and artistic movement, but I think really for our purposes a kind of literary movement, which involves a kind of reaction against the neoclassicism of the earlier 18th century, a turn towards the self, to questions of interiority and the imagination, but also a different kind of engagement with the natural world, uh, with landscapes, with ideas of the sublime, which is sort of crystallising in philosophy in the 18th century, with a different sense of the kind of political engagement that you might expect of a literary figure or a literary text, a kind of urgency about the role of art and literature in big public conversations. So there's a whole kind of number of different things evolving, use the word evolving, but actually changing in quite dramatic ways. And obviously there are poets who come earlier, someone like William Cooper, for example, who's trying out a lot of this, but it all comes together in a kind of fizz in the work of the early Romantic poets.
0: Well, can you tell us about some of those early Romantic poets and perhaps people who followed them? Who are we talking about when we're talking about the Romantics? So if you'd asked that question
1: 20 years ago, there'd have been a very straight answer, which would
0: have been six big men.
1: Uh, So the big six, so Wordsworth and Coleridge and Blake, and then in the second generation, Shelley and Keats and Byron. That model of romanticism or romantic studies where it's dominated by these the big six, the big six men, has been sort of interestingly complicated over the last 20 years. So we now think of the romantic movement as being the work of a much more heterogeneous group of thinkers in who we might include Mary wollstonecraft Godwin, later Mary Shelley, author of Frankenstein. We might think about a novelist like Walter Scott, uh, poets like Anne Letitia Barbold, uh gothic novelists like Anne Radcliffe. So a much more diverse group of writers. But those names that, that I mentioned, those, those, those six, are still absolutely in play at the centre.
0: That idea you mentioned there about... The changing nature of the term romantics and how it's been reinterpreted is really interesting um, because Miss Geodens on Instagram and also Phil Gabe on Twitter have asked about the name romantics. So when and why were these people first called the romantics? Did they think of themselves as romantics? No, they didn't. They thought
1: they were doing some things which were new, but that's not a term they'd necessarily apply to themselves. So the first person to use it is actually the German philosopher Schlegel, who uses it in 1798. It begins to sort of enter a kind of consciousness or a kind of public conversation In the 19th century, there are some early usages of it in the 1820s, but it sort of becomes attached to this moment in literary history in the mid-19th century. So it's a retrospective term which seeks to bring together all these different ideas, these different people, into a kind of movement. But that's not to say that Wordsworth and Coleridge, for example, didn't think of themselves as being part of a new movement when they were writing. It's just not necessarily the name they would have given to themselves.
0: I think one of the things that's really interesting about the Romantics is not only their work, but also their lives and the way that they chose to live their lives. How did that play into all of this? So there
1: are different answers for different figures in this movement, I'd say. Wordsworth and Coleridge in the 1790s, in response to the political disappointment of the repression that comes in Britain after the revolution, moved to, first of all, to the Quantocks and then to the Lake District and begin to think about the way in which poetry might speak in the language of men, the way in which you might respond to political repression by taking language back to its most sort of elemental form to engage in with working class communities. So there's a kind of conscious decision to live differently, to live outside the metropolis. In the second generation, Shelley and Keats and Byron, you have again a whole set of different answers some of which are much more metropolitan. The label that gets attached to Keeps, for example, is that of the Cockney School. So the idea that you have these kind of ideals but um, filtered through life of the city. For someone like Shelley and Mary Shelley, it's about living outside kind of traditional social and legal structures. So living together while I'm married, for example, living in unconventional family units. That's partly true of Byron too. Another very complicated answer relates to the case of William Blake, who doesn't really fit into any particular school, but who also lives in a kind of highly unconventional way. So it's about not living according to the word Wordsworth might use as custom, you know, to do with kind of archaic or obsolete legal and social ideals, but living according to the dictates of your heart or your ideas.
0: So it's all about being somewhat unconventional then? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But was there anything that the romantics did draw on? That's a question that we've had in from Brendan Mitchell on Facebook. Lots. So
1: you can't... You can't make a a tidy distinction between romantic literature and that that comes before. This is a group of poets who are really, really influenced and novelists too by 18th century literature, by things that come much earlier. So you can see Byron, for example, engaging with Pope. I've talked about William Cooper, who's a really important figure in that kind of turn towards the self and to the kind of individual experience. You can see his influence in the work of Wordsworth and Coleridge. The influence too of someone like Charlotte Smith, who's not a poet and novelist we read much today, but who is tremendously influential in terms of what she does with poetry, poetry, which is sort of socially connected um, poetry about the working poor, for example. So there are lots and lots and lots of points of connection. Shelley, Percy Shelley and Mary Shelley, too, are constantly reading 18th century philosophy. So, yes, they're drawing on all these different traditions and also reading work. The other kind of huge influence is not just of things written in English, but Coleridge, for example, very, very influenced by the people who you might think of as the German romantics, who's a a group of philosophers who are working in Jena, the university town in Germany, Schlegel, um, Immanuel Kant, uh, all these people whose work you can see kind of refracted through. There's not neat uh, national divisions don't really hold up in quite the same way in this period.
0: Mm. And on that note... Um, Holly Doodah, amazing name on Instagram, has asked how the tradition of the Grand Tour in which young men would go and have a kind of cultural experience on the continent influenced the movement.
1: So the Grand Tour is interesting in that it's an aristocratic phenomenon. You only get to go gallivanting around Europe as a young 18th century man if you have plenty of money to kind of fund your travels and fund your retinue. But what it does is it opens up Europe as a site of tourism, as a site of of artistic inquiry in the 18th century before that possibility is closed down completely by war on the European continent. So then for over a decade two decades really it's impossible which means that places like italy and france become a kind of a kind of chimera you know a place which has been written about in literature and art has been painted but which can't be reached so that's a very powerful ideal wordsworth is in france when the revolution breaks out not as a grand tourist but because he's sort of gone to 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 see it and he says in the prelude to be young was very heaven so he wanted to sort of be in be in place to see all this happening. So what the Grand Tour does is it brings a kind of vision of uh, Europe, of of, of a place which is other and different into public consciousness in books and in art. And that's a very influential idea. And then when people like the Shelleys are able to go back to Italy, for example, after the Battle of Waterloo after 1815, there's a kind of version of
0: Europe waiting to be discovered and remade. And while we're speaking about the influences of the Romantics, Agrobiodiverse on Twitter has asked how the Enlightenment plays into all of this. Another really, really
1: important question. Uh, I've talked about the way in which some of these big figures read the philosophy of the 18th century, uh, but it's also about a kind of reaction. So, a very influential figure who we've not yet talked about for all the English romantics, and one way or another, is Jean-Jacques Rousseau, uh, the great French philosopher. Rousseau's work, Rousseau's version of the man and the man in nature, is a kind of reaction, too, to early Enlightenment thinking, um, in re- reaction to the works of someone like Voltaire, for example. So these discussions, these ideas, are mediated through other philosophers, and then they find their way into... English Romantic Art and Literature.
0: I guess that's something we really should touch on at this point is what some of the key works of the Romantic movement were. Um, Could you run us through a couple? Yeah, so the big hitters are... Lyrical Ballads, which is the
1: volume of poetry produced jointly by Wordsworth and Coleridge in 1798, which takes the language of ordinary men and makes poet, poetry out of it, and which also returns, as the title indicates, to much older literary forms to the ballad, if you think about Coleridge's Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. So that's a really important work, both because of the poetry, but also because in the advertisement to lyrical ballads, Wordsworth and Coleridge, although largely Wordsworth who writes it, announces a kind of new way of thinking about poetry and about the role of poetry in articulating political and social concerns. You'd have to include, although it's not read at the time, in anything like the numbers, it will be subsequently Blake's Songs of Innocence and Experience – These extraordinary handmade books by Blake, which fuse word and image together in ways which just no one has seen before. So tremendously influential in thinking about the relationship between different genres. And then in the later generation, well, you have the poetry of Shelley. You have a poem like Alasta, for example, which is Shelley's sort of first articulation of the figure of the solitary romantic uh, poet, the, the, the romantic genius, alone in a landscape. You have Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, a novel which fuses so many different traditions and ideas uh, in prose. And then you have Keats's Odes, these sort of extraordinary artistic expressions of the world he sees around him, of the role of poetry, of how you articulate and um, give words to beauty. And there's there's much more you could say, but that gives you an example. The dominant mode is poetry, but this is not only a genre or a movement which is about poetry.
0: I'm interested in the inclusion of Frankenstein in that list. It's probably the work in that list that the most people would have heard of. But Frankenstein, I think, is often seen as a piece of horror fiction, a piece of Gothic fiction. What makes it romantic? The way in which
1: it is very, very immersed in the world in which it was written. So Mary Shelley famously started writing Frankenstein after a stormy night by the shores of Lake Geneva in which everyone who was president, Shelley and Byron and Mary Shelley and her sister and a a friend of Byron's, all decided to tell ghost stories. And really what Frankenstein does is it thinks through that idea of the solitary romantic creator. And it's pretty sceptical about that model of creativity. It does not go well for Dr. Frankenstein to be a kind of isolated individual working alone. So it's a kind of critique of that romantic model, which is very, very influential. Yes, it absolutely draws on elements of the Gothic, but actually... If you read Frankenstein, the novel, as opposed to watching, say, Boris Karloff's film, what you get is a book not particularly interested in in the actual mechanics of creation. It's a bit fuzzy about that. It's not really proto-science fiction in terms of the fact it just sort of happens. She doesn't really want to be bothered with telling you how. But it's much more interested in the consequences of creating something which speaks to the scale of the human imagination, but then becomes terrifying. So it's really about the potential of the human imagination to create something extraordinary and then to lose control of it, which is a very romantic idea.
0: Mm. So I might throw a slightly facetious question at you now. So for anyone who might hear the names Wordsworth or Keats or um, Shelley and, and think of boring English lessons at school what would you say to them why were the romantics so exciting and so innovative and so great to study? So I think you have slightly
1: different answers depending on who you're talking about but what characterises all those works I've just I've just named is they're all driven by a kind of preoccupation with what it means to be alive you know what does it mean to be in the world particularly to be in the world and when the world is in crisis and there's also driving through all those works is what it's like to be young in the world I mean yeah you know, all those works are written by young men and women who are sort of in the process of working out what it is they think about politics about society about the world in which they live in about their own role so these are not abstract kind of philosophical questions these are urgent questions and if you read them what you get is a whole different series of different kinds of answers to that question what does it mean to be alive at a moment of change of crisis there's nothing sort of dusty or irrelevant about that question I think
0: I want to take us on now to a few more questions about the lives of the Romantics. So Serena has asked a really interesting question about what role class played in the movement. Um, She's asked, what socioeconomic backgrounds did the Romantics tend to come from and how did this affect their lifestyles and success, but also their work?
1: So again, you have a slightly different answer depending on who you're talking about. None of them are working class. William Blake is um, parents, apprentice him as a young man so to a printmaker. So he is from a kind of artisan trade background. Keats gets a very good education, but then goes off to train as an apothe- apothecary. So that both Blake and Keats come from a slightly more modest background, you know, where you have to work for a living. Shelley and Byron are... Uh, if not our Byron's an aristocrat Shelley is a member of the kind of landed gentry a kind of rebel from the landed gentry. Wordsworth and Coleridge don't have an awful lot of money as young men but they're both I mean Coleridge is born into Unitarian families into, into a you know kind of respectable educated uh, middle class I guess you would say. So what that means is that at their most political these are not poets of the labouring classes these are not poets who are sort of leading the working men they are speaking for the working man and it's predominantly a working man although not not entirely they're not um, they're, they're not radicals who come sort of up, up from the people they are commentators from a position of relative privilege they experience at various points, kind of want and hardship around money. None none of them have much money, but none of them are compelled really to work for a living.
0: Which must have given them a whole host of freedoms to write and to and to think and to experiment with, with the form that perhaps other people would not have had if they had to be more commercially driven.
1: That's exactly it. So Wordsworth and Coleridge are pretty broke in 1798, but they can still go off on a kind of big walking tour of Germany. Um, there's lots of concerns about money, but none of them ever go hungry. So when Wordsworth and Coleridge voice what it's like to go hungry in lyrical ballads... It's, a, it's an act of imagination. It's about saying, how can you use the imagination to inhabit the states in which other people live? So it's, it's slightly different from being the voices of those who are suffering in Britain.
0: Mm. You've already touched on this a bit in our conversation, but Hannah Laura Ridgely has asked about the female writers um, considered part of this group. You've obviously mentioned some, but I wonder if you could tell us a bit more about their role and their position within the movement. We've talked about Mary
1: Shelley already and about Frankenstein. She's the, probably the biggest name in terms of thinking about this, this moment in literary history. I mentioned Charlotte Smith, who is whose poetry comes earlier, but who's writing novels right through the Romantic period, another Romantic novelist. A really interesting figure is Letitia Barbold, who is known to Wordsworth and Coleridge. They sort of move in similar circles at various points in the 1790s. She writes an extraordinary poem called M 1811 1811, which is a kind of vision of, of of Britain, a sense of what Britain might be. So highly politically engaged. Charlotte Smith's poem "Beachy Head" is a kind of one of the great under uh, undervalued poems of the Romantic movement in terms of how it thinks about history and literature and art and memory and the role of the self in the landscape. And then there are more minor people who come later. So the poet L. E. L. is a kind of interesting late Romantic figure of magazine verse, of occasional verse. So there's lots of really interesting women who are moving in these circles and who are responding to these kind of enormous changes in literature and art and thinking about how you use literature to respond to living through seismic change. But their names certainly don't tend to be as well known as that of the men.
0: Mm. And another question we've had in on Twitter is what the relationships of the romantics were like with each other, because many of them did have personal relationships as well as professional ones.
1: So there's a bit of a distinction between those who we might call the first generation Wordsworth and Coleridge and Blake and the second generation the groups around Shelley and Keats and Byron Wordsworth and Coleridge are great friends uh, although they have a pretty testy relationship and they fall out as as they get older but their collaboration over lyrical ballads is intense and important and productive although not emotionally uncomplicated for either of them Blake stands slightly apart as a printmaker and engraver a practitioner and artisan who doesn't really fall into groups neatly. He's, the, he's the, the cat who walks by himself. In the second generation, Shelley and Byron become great friends. Shelley and Keats also are friendly, but there's always a kind of element of suspicion around class. Keats is suspicious of Shelley's wealth, of his entitlement, of his privilege. The second generation are tremendously influenced by the first generation. So you know, Shelley is very influenced, for example, by lyrical ballads. But when Wordsworth and Coleridge, after particularly after 1815, become reactionary or sort of turn their back from the idealism of their youth, it is a tremendous disappointment to that second generation who really experience it as a sense of betrayal, actually.
0: And what's the age gap between those two generations, as you term them?
1: Not huge, so Wordsworth and Kohler had sort of come to maturity, are young men in the 1790s. Uh, Shelley and Keats and Byron Shelley and Keats in particular are young men in the 1810s so it's a kind of 10-15 year gap it's not enormous but they have their formative experiences at very different times so for Shelley and Byron and Keats their kind of formative experiences of early maturity come after 1815 after the, the final end of any hope of kind of revolutionary progress in Europe you know the Bourbon monarchs, monarchs are restored in France all those ideals seem to have gone Whereas Wordsworth and Coleridge and Blake are having their formative experiences in the 1790s, in the years immediately following the French Revolution, when everything seems possible, but when repression then comes in Britain very quickly and very hard.
0: And I'm intrigued by those relationships um, that you say that were really artistically important. What came first? Was it friendship that then led to artistic collaboration, or was it they were drawn together because that they respected each other's work? So Wordsworth and
1: Coleridge meet because Coleridge sort of wants to meet Wordsworth. There's a moment where he goes to he, gets, he goes to find them, and uh, Wordsworth and his sister Dorothy, who are living at a house in Somerset, see Coleridge leaping the fence, having walked to come and come and kind of make the acquaintance of Wordsworth. So there's a kind of interest in the ideas of each other, which then leads to friendship, and which then leads to this intense collaboration, which then almost sort of breaks the friendship over over a kind of longer period. Shelley and Byron, who are the other kind of, I guess, great romantic friendship pair, come together partly because Shelley wants to meet Byron. But they're also linked in very, very complicated ways by the relationship that Byron has with Mary Shelley's stepsister Claire Claremont by the child that Claire Claremont has by Byron, by kind of pragmatic, practical, difficult, familial relationships, which they're sort of drawn into as a result of circumstance, which both enable productive conversation about art because it puts them together in the same place, but also creates real friction.
0: You mentioned earlier um, an unconventional approach to things like um, marriage and and sex and love as well as art. Yeah. And here again, you've just mentioned, you know, illegitimate children. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about that and how outlandish or how shocking that would have been to people at the time.
1: So that's a story which really relates to the circle around Shelley and Mary Godwin. So at the point that Shelley and Mary Godwin meet, uh, Shelley's already married to somebody else. Uh, he's had, had one baby's been born, another's on the way, so he abandons his first wife, Harriet. He and Mary Godwin conduct a romance largely at the site of the grave of her mother, Mary Wollstonecraft, in old St Pancras churchyard. They elope to France in the summer of 1814, taking Mary's stepsister Claire. With them. And then when they return to London, they live as an unmarried couple. And Shelley talks about sort of living outside these narrow, restrictive legal um, structures. He he rejects all that. And she's t- terribly disappointed when William Godwin, Mary Shelley's father, who has in his own work previously written about all that as being sort of false, is absolutely horrified the idea that his daughter should actually live in an kind of unmarried state but then when claire is part of this household so it's a highly unconventional household there are experiments in what uh, they variously call free love with Shelley's friend thomas jefferson hogg in the uh, in 1814 and 1815 so there are various experiments in living which are highly idealistic but which cause a great deal of pain particularly in fact to the women involved and as an old lady Claire writes about the kind of degree of pain occasioned by these these experiments in living. But they are an attempt to live out the kind of philosophy of the poetry. But philosophy and real life can be pretty difficult bedfellows, and that's what they all find,
0: actually. Mm. And Monica Deval on Twitter has asked how other people saw the romantics at the time. She's asked, were they respected, mocked or ostracised?
1: But they definitely weren't really respected. Um, there's a lot of ostracization that goes on. Byron is driven out of England in 1816 because of rumours that are circulating about his relationship with his half-sister Augusta, but also rumours about his relationship with boys. So uh, he ha- he's sort of driven into exile. Wordsworth and Coleridge in their youth, feel that they're sort of living outside the margins, really, of society. They're followed into, uh, into the countryside by a spy who thinks that they may be kind of radicals or somehow in league with the French in the 1790s. When Shelley dies, when he's drowned in 1822, one of the newspapers writes, the infidel Shelley is drowned. Now he knows whether there is a god or no. So, you know, pretty brutal, actually. Keats' poetry is slammed by most of the newspapers, which causes Byron to, Say in his great poem Don Juan* that Keats was snuffed out by an article. It's not true, Keats dies of tuberculosis, but it speaks to a sense in which the world is sort of ranged against these figures at various points.
0: So when did their work then become beloved and popular and respected?
1: So for Wordsworth, it happens in his lifetime. You know, by 1850, Wordsworth is one of the grand, grand old men of English letters. He's made poet laureate. For Shelley, not really until after he dies, similarly for Keats. Keats at one stage says, I think I will be among the English poets after my death, which is a tremendously kind of bold thing to say given his work achieves so little recognition. For Shelley, the story is really that his work circulates in kind of underground radical circles in the years immediately following his death. He's taken up by the Chartists, for example. But then as his descendants start to produce sanitized biographies of him in the mid-19th century, he gets reinvented as what Matthew Arnold calls the kind of ineffectual angel. So stripped of the politics, stripped of the radicalism and seen as a poet of kind of ethereal beauty instead. Blake's work is admired by a small circle of kind of, of of supporters from its outset. But again, it's not really until the mid-19th century as people start to write biographies and look at his legacy and look at the body of his work that it begins to be seen as significant. Byron is a major celebrity and his work is popular and bought in in, in kind of vast quantities. But again, it's about scandal and celebrity rather than about literary worth until really the years following his death in Greece. So for lots of them... Success, literary success, is only posthumous. It only comes after they've died. But they all, uh, the three younger poets all die quite young too.
0: I was going to ask about that because I was interested by this thing you said earlier about um, they were disappointed at the first generation almost growing out of romanticism and that rebelliousness and idealism of youth. How significant do you think it is that Keats, Shelley and Byron all Died fairly young. I think it's highly significant
1: because they never have a chance to grow out of it themselves so Mary Shelley in 1826 when she is writing her next novel or a novel called the last man talks about being the kind of last of her generation in her late 20s so this sense that you know everyone who she lived with has died although she's not yet 30 so she definitely has a feel the feeling that she has outlived her entire generation but no it's really significant that the three younger, poets never have a chance to outgrow their youthful radicalism they never have to kind of they never reach middle age and have to confront the work of their youth in the way that Wordsworth and Coleridge have to do and Blake
0: I wonder whether there are any really surprising facts or eye-opening stories about the romantics that you think are worth sharing with listeners
1: gosh that's a really really interesting question There's a great story I mentioned about the spy following uh, Wordsworth and Coleridge, following Wordsworth and Coleridge to Somerset in the 1790s, where the spy lurks outside the house in the evenings, listening to the conversation between Wordsworth and Coleridge and their friend John Selwell, who is a real kind of radical figure. And the spy reports back in records, which you can see at the National Archives, that they are talking about a French spy, a French spy called Spinoza. But in fact, what they're talking about is the philosopher Spinoza. So this is one of the stories which gets sort of told about the level of paranoia, actually, that they are encountering in their lives. I and mean, it's funny, but actually... You know, Selwol, their friend, has put on trial during the treason trials of the 1790s for works of thought and imagination. Men and women who that generation know have their lives ruined by political repression. So that story is amusing, but it speaks to what it's like to live where you're kind of essentially positioned as the enemy of the state. Selwall is put on trial because he is overheard by another spy in a pub blowing the head off a pint of porter and saying, I would do that to the head of the king. And that puts him on a charge of having compassed or imagined the death of the king, which is an old, old law, a medieval law, but which is reawakened in the 1790s, essentially to make acts of imagination Potentially criminal. And that's incredibly important in how these romantic writers come to think of the imagination. It's sort of been threatened by the state. You no longer have the right to think or imagine freely. So there are some great anecdotes about all this, but actually it leads to a lot of really serious thinking as well. These men and women know so many people who have their papers searched, who have their rooms turned inside out. It's a kind of period of huge, huge repression, not necessarily because the law is always coming at you but because you're kind of expected to live and think in a particular way habeas corpus is suspended there's a kind of vigilante justice too a figure who's really important to all these that first generation called joseph Priestley is firebombed out of his house in birmingham by a loyalist mob who suspects him of being kind of in league with french chemists so It's a kind of physical and psychic danger that people, that this this whole generation of thinkers is living with, which has a really profound impact on how they think about the right to think and imagine freely.
0: Brendan Mitchell on Facebook has asked about the legacy of the romantics. Where can we see their impact?
1: It's so enormous, it's hard to kind of draw a discreet picture. You can see it in all sorts of ways. You can see it in that relationship between literature and the self, in the idea that literature is also the the vehicle through which interiority, the imagination, can be described. So you can see that influence in nineteenth-century poetry, but also in the work of modernists, you know, like Woolf and Eliot. The idea that literature has this sort of profound social conscience reappears in the novels of the Victorian period and Condition of England novels by people like Gaskell or Disraeli. Ideas about kind of heroism and about genius, which we think of as sort of commonplace, are romantic but I guess possibly most significantly is really what it means to be an author, what it means to be a kind of person of imagination, of vision. So many of ideas, our ideas about creativity and authorship, come from this period, from this idea that you're not, you're no longer as the author waiting for the muse to strike you. A muse that, for Milton, say, comes from God. The muse is within yourself. You know, it is your own imagination. And that idea is so powerful and long-lasting that you can trace its tentacles everywhere, really, in how we think about the imagination and art and what it means to be creative in the 21st century.
0: Mm. And finally, Daisy, what is your favourite romantic work?
1: Now, that's a really hard question. I have an enormous affection for Frankenstein because it was a novel which made me think about literature differently when I was 17, the same age that Mary Shelley was when she wrote Frankenstein, a novel which opened my eyes to what it was that words on a page could do. And I don't think you ever kind of quite forget those formative experiences... But I also love Keats's poetry. I love Keats's odes. And I have a particular soft spot for a poem that Shelley wrote called Julian and Madeline," which imagines a conversation between him and Byron. And I like it both because of the way in which it plays with all these ideas that we've been talking about, but also because it is about friendship. And it's about the way in which conversation with someone who thinks in ways which are similar to you, but also very distinctive, can fire your imagination. So it means a great deal to me in how I think about this group, that this is not just the poetry of individualism, of the solitary creator. It's also so interested in what it means to talk and be among people, to work and think in a community. And it feels to me like those ideas, that celebration of the ideas of other people, are really, really important too.
0: That was Daisy Hay. Her books include Young Romantics, The Shelleys, Byron and Other Tangled Lives, and The Making of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden.